Hey guys, it's Savvy Sabs, and I have a special guest with me today. Her name is Jen Perlman, and she was a candidate for House of Representatives for Florida's 23rd Congressional District. And she is currently the host of Generational Change Podcast, and that's generational with a J. So welcome, Jen. Hi, thank you so much for having me. All right, so before we get started into today's discussion, Jen, can you tell everyone a little bit about your background? Yeah, so <clears throat> I am a native Floridian. I grew up down here. I, um, I'm second generation native. I left for 15 years, college, grad school, law school, husband, two kids, right? I eventually resettled here in 2003. It's already been like 18 years almost. Um, and so... I've noticed the changes. I've seen what's happening to my district, to my area. We have serious environmental issues. So I just started to really pay attention to our representation here and how lacking it is, but it's extremely corporate and very um, special interest oriented. So even though we're gonna be the first people to be underwater, our representation takes money from the fossil fuel industry, big sugar, like other polluters. And so we're, we have nobody. So around... 2016, 2018, and I, I started noticing that non-corporate candidates were able to get in and have been able to break through. So the timing just lent itself to me feeling somewhat inspired and realizing that I, I suit a certain demographic and that's just the reality. I am a older than middle-aged woman. I am Jewish and I am from this district. And that is strategically a demographic that this district generally supports. Okay, so I mean, there is strategy involved. We'll talk about that later. But anyway, so um, as somebody in my position, I felt like I had an opportunity and it was a privilege to, you know, just try to push and push for regular people. And that's what we're still doing. That's what we're, you know, that's what our podcast is about. Awesome. Um, so today, Jen and I are going to talk about what mm -hmm. it's like running for office, uh, particularly someone who ran a grassroots campaign. So Jen, um, can you tell everyone, like you gave us a little bit there, but can you tell us exactly like what really pushed you to run mm -hmm. for office and why you decided to run a grassroots campaign? So those go together because the whole point of what we're trying to do is because we are tired of the corporate money in our system. So it's the running a grassroots campaign was, that was just, there was no other way. Like there, I, I, there's no other way to do this. The whole point of this is to get the corporate money out. So there was no other way it was gonna be. Um, and really for me, it was timing. I've always been involved politically. I've always been aware of policy. I went to law school because I wanted to lobby for nonprofits. So um, my interest was always in lobbying, which is interesting how much people hate on lobbyists. We could talk about that. It's a necessary thing. But um, so that was my thought and I'm very interested in policy. So when I realized non-corporatists could get through, uh, my partner and I, and I say that my, it's my work partner. I also have a husband because people have thought that that's my, he's my, my, my work partner. Um, and we just started realizing that the timing was right. My demographic was right, that there was an opportunity that I could be take down an incumbent. Um, and we did really well, actually. So, well, we, I mean, like, I, I don't, I want you to like go in the order you want to go, but we could mm -hmm. talk about like wh what we learned and all that, but it was timing. Timing is everything. 
Yeah, so um, you ran against Debbie Wasserman Schultz, um, who was also chairwoman of the DNC. Could you tell everybody what it was like running against someone who was an establishment Democrat candidate? Hmm. It's funny because I don't know any other way. I've only run in that race. So, and that's something that people need to really understand when we talk about what it's like running for office in general, because there is a huge difference between running for an open seat, running in a general when there was nobody in a primary, and, and what I did, which is challenging a, like a 30-year uh, Democratic incumbent, basically, that's between our state house and our Congress. She's been representing this area for 30 years. Um, it's, it, that's a very different experience. So there, there, there's differences in strategy and how you would address it. Um, Debbie is very corporate. Mm -hmm. She's been my representative since I've moved back. And she takes money, not just from corporate interests, but pretty nefarious corporate interests. So, you know, we're talking about payday lenders, the military industrial complex, the fossil fuel industry, the for-profit prison industry. So not just corporate, but, but corporate that is so working against what we need. And so we really need to get rid of, of, of her and, and really everyone like her, because this is what, this is the problem. We're, Discussing policy is a complete waste of time if we don't get the corporate money out of our system. And that's what people have to understand. So I would vote for a non-corporate conservative before I will vote for a corporate Democrat. Because if you're not corporate, you're gonna have to be representing your people or you can't stay there. So if you're conservative and you're properly representing your constituency because you live in a conservative area, then you're doing your job. So it's not for us to determine what everyone's representation should look like. That's first of all. And that's a big problem I have with some people like that are Democrats. It's like, just turn it blue. Well, it depends on where, and it depends on the people you're serving. There are places that don't just believe that, and that's okay. The question is, are they beholden to their constituents or are they beholden to corporate interests? And so that's what we're about. Now in Florida, we have closed primaries. So the only way to get rid of Debbie Wasserman Schultz is in that Democratic primary. So I am a Democrat, um, but it is not based on policy anymore because I don't think they have any. So that's, I mean, my situation in my state and my race is very specific. And I'll, and I'll reiterate that like we're going for like, cause there are people that are, could be watching this from, uh, where are you based? I'm in Boston. Okay. So people watching this where your state laws are different, your party system's different. So it, it, this is specific to where I am. Right. Um, we were, I was talking about this with uh, Rome Bethea in a, a recent interview, mm -hmm. and he brought up some of the things that you said that like people are continuously voting for like corporate, like, or Democrats that have corporate interests. Yeah. He, he said that he told his friends, you know, look around, like, have you looked at your neighborhood? Has your neighborhood improved? And you keep voting for the same person like in office. Why do you think that is? Why do you think people just continue to vote for people <clears throat> that are not improving their community? Yeah, like why does Debbie keep winning, right? Mm -hmm. Like how does she keep doing? It's fascinating, it's weird. Okay, it comes down to, I think <clears throat> there's two main categories. One, we have a very non-functioning republic. There are very many elements of our republic that are just not working in terms of how we're gerrymandered, the types of things that we see with voter suppression, which is real. 
Okay, this isn't like some conspiracy, this is real. Why don't we have automatic voter registration? Why do people have to jump through hoops? You know, like, like we, we definitely have it harder than it needs to be and that's intentional. Okay, so there are certain elements of our system that keep it so that people that are unpopular can keep winning. And that's our entire Congress with very few exceptions. There's only a handful of Congress people, interestingly, the squad type people, who have higher approval ratings that that match their uh, voting, their elect elections, right? So like you would think in theory, if your approval rating is less than 20%, how are you getting reelected, right? Like it doesn't even make sense. That's because we have a non-functioning republic and there's different ways to fix that. The other thing is, is the vicious cycle we're stuck in with the corporate money. So most people are not involved. They're not. And if somebody's watching this, they're already more involved than like 85% of the people in this country. You know, so that's that's a problem. People are defeatist. And a biggest, I think the biggest part of that is we no longer have a labor party. We have no labor party in this country. We have two corporate parties. So the corporate money keeps propping up the corporate candidates because they have corporate money, they can afford to do a mailer a day. You know, I'm running, Debbie raised like $1.8 million against me in a primary. We had 400,000. So, you know, she can afford because of the corporate money to have name recognition. And when you have about 85% of the people that only participate, by the way, in a general election and only in a presidential election, you know, so they come out once every, and our voter participation is low anyway. And those people come out, they're going to just vote for the name they know. And the name that they know is based on their mailers, their commercials, all of the stuff that corporate money can buy. So with a grassroots campaign, it's almost like what you don't have with money, you have to make up with, with well, substance, but also on the ground. We're on the ground. You have to be out meeting people. So COVID didn't help. You know, like there's a lot, there's so many variables, but really we are in a vicious cycle of corporatism that we just have to keep chipping away at. And we are, we are, we've, look, I mean, five years ago, nobody was talking about Medicare for all. And, um, and now that's daily you know, that's, that's a daily conversation. So we have made progress, but the key thing is people just have to follow the money. They just have to, that's who's dictating what your representatives are doing. So you could vote for the bluest person that you think there is. If they're taking money from Honeywell, they're going to be supporting the military industrial complex. They're going to be supporting also like, that's just how this works. So people need to understand how it works and they need to, and this is basically, um, this is um, public information, by the way. This isn't, you can look up where people get their money. This is not rumors or anything. Um, OpenSecrets.org. I highly recommend people go there and follow the money. No, I agree. And, and sometimes we've seen like recently with Bernie, um, when he was running for president, like he had the most, he raised the most money, like just yeah. individual donors and and even then, I felt like the DNC still tried to find a way to stop him. Oh, they were never letting him be the candidate. That was never going to happen. I was stupid enough to think that it could happen the second time. I don't know what that was sort of like, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. That's how I felt because there was, they were never going to let that happen. Um, when you look at the numbers of, I don't care what anybody says, if you think that that primary 
was really legitimate. And I don't mean that they were switching votes and all that. I mean the whole picture, the media coverage, the, the tone that is set by the DNC, where the support goes, the lies that are told, just all of it, the whole thing leading up to Iowa. <clears throat> and if you think that that is completely legitimate, you have really got to understand how this works. So if this were based on the most popular person, Bernie Sanders, we would have just had his second inauguration. And I don't care. When you look at those pictures and somebody can fill up an arena, somebody who's filling up an arena is losing to someone who can't fill up a conference room? Mm -hmm. it, no. No. So what we see is, again, a broken republic. Our represent our wishes are not being represented by our election process and that there's a lot of variables ranging again from media blackouts to um the DCCC fatwa which that affected down ballots i don't know if you're familiar with i call it a fatwa the DCCC issued um a rule two years ago that said any consultants that work for and and support challengers to incumbents will be blackballed from the DCCC. So people, for example, the person that was gonna do our compliance for us, she couldn't, she was too scared to do it because then she would never get another job doing compliance. So the DCCC basically two years ago put out this order and things like that affect how things work. So to say that things aren't fixed just because the exact process in that moment isn't fixed is short-sighted. So I, I want people to understand when I say that it's fixed, I'm not being conspiratorial that somebody was sneaking in and switching ballots. Although a lot of the, the counting machines are problematic in that regard too. Um, this is just, you can see it broad as day. Mm. No, that's, that's, that's so important to hear because I think a lot of people, they just don't see the big picture no. um, or they think, well, I went and voted and I didn't have to wait long and I didn't see any voter fraud or or anything like that, but they don't understand that like, number one, not every state is the same. Um, I, I can tell you here in Massachusetts, we do paper ballots. Yeah. We haven't touched a machine. We don't have any- so they, are they, so they're hand counted? Yep. Okay, see we have, that's the thing. So we have paper ballots, but they run them through the machine. And here's the best part. This is the best because the machine, basically the company that it's that one that it's like three quarters of the states use this machine to, it's like the biggest one. But even in, if, you, if you get a recount, even if you're entitled to a recount, all they do is run it through the same machine. So, so there's absolutely no recourse whatsoever in the states that do that. Think about how massive that is. Like, it's a really big problem. Mm. Mm. And now that I think about it, um, voting in Massachusetts, I've never had to wait long to vote. Um, it's literally, it's always been an in and out thing for me, yeah. um, but not the same in other states that I've lived in. When I lived in South Carolina, I remember me and my mom were waiting in line for a long time. And that was yep. Bush and um, Bush Kerry uh, election. And then I came to Massachusetts and I was like, what is this? 15 minutes. I just get in and out and do my little paper thing. And actually we do put it through a machine, but, but we do it. Right. So a little bit different like we do it and then it just it we've never had those issues here and i'm just like but the machine is counting the votes mm. right see this is this is the thing and and those machines are programmed by humans 
So when you, it's not, it's not ideal. It's not ideal. We need, we need people to be paid to just sit there and count ballots. And there's ways to do this. There are places that do hand counted paper ballots. It's very feasible. Um, if this is nothing that's, you know, crazy, there's countries that are bigger than ours that do hand counted paper ballots. It's not, people do this, um, but it's not as profitable. And we have a process that's based on profit. So the people that run the machines, the people that do the training, the people that have, so these are contracts with all the states and then the states get, they, they have to pay their people to do, like, this is a whole, pro our election process is for profit. Mm. So just like anything else that's for profit, you have to wonder, you have to wonder, like there, this is one of the biggest problems. This is another that we can get into a whole issue about the profitization of our electoral process, but it's like, it's crazy. Yeah. And some of the things I hear people say is, well, recently with like the squad, like AOC and Iona Presley, um, I voted for her because I, she was mm -hmm. in my district at the time. Um, and she also ran up against a, an incumbent here. And people always say, well, anyone can run, like they did it and, and we can do it too. Um, but I think people may not realize like everything that they're up against and those people tend to be outliers. Could you like explain a little bit about that? Yeah, it's, this is something that, and I, when I say this, I'm not, there's no, there's no ego involved in this. This isn't, you have to be a very specific type of person to not only be able to do this, but to be a good candidate. And, and people have to have a certain amount of self-awareness. And that's something people don't do. A lot of people look at it like, I want that job. I want that job. I want that job. And now I'm going to sell myself to everyone else because I want that job. It's like this top-down candidate concept. Mm -hmm. that, that doesn't work for a grassroots candidate. That can only work for a corporate candidate, because if you're going to force somebody down people's throats, you have to have a lot of money. Otherwise, you, you like a grassroots candidate has to be from the ground up, from the people. There needs to be sort of an organic nature to what they're doing and where they're from and who they speak for. And when you look at people like AOC and Cori Bush and Jamal Bowman, what you see are people that represent their people. And that is how you get this. And it takes a while. It's not without money. It takes a while because it's name recognition. But when people know you and they see you, mm -hmm. um, but not everybody has that. And it is, it's like anything else. It's like anything, not everybody is meant to do everything. And that's just the way it is. And people are better suited for other roles. Like not everybody is meant to be a candidate, but yes, these are outliers. And when you are going up against a machine you can't just be a so-so candidate. It, it's like, this is one of those where it has to be the perfect storm. It has to be the perfect storm. There's a timing, there's an election, like in terms of um, what the populace is wanting, there's the election issue, there's whether or not you're a decent candidate, it's how hard the establishment is working against you. Like there's so many variables and you can only control a couple of those. And one of those main ones is, are you really suited? Like, is this really a good move? Um, and that's a hard one for people, I think, because they see it, it they want to get involved. They want that job. Um, and I think that you have to put your ego aside and realize that this is about the movement. It's about the policy. It's about what we're trying to do. It's not about any person in any job. And what I have found in terms of the progressives that are breaking through is they get that. Yeah. 
Mm. So I don't know if that's just a coincidence. I don't think so. <laughs> and I, I know Corey and I know Jamal. I haven't met Alex. Um, and Corey Bush is, she's like the, she is what this is all about. Every single person in Congress should represent their people the way Corey Bush represents her people. That is what this job is about. And to me, she is just the complete epitome of that in, in her dedication to representing her people in how she recognizes. And more importantly, she is them. See, I think that's also, that's the thing. If you are your people, then you're representing your people. And I, I think we especially see people that will move places to run for open seats because it's an open seat, like that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. That's, that's not the organic thing I'm talking about. So I think that you need a perfect storm and they, people need to recognize that those people are exceptional. They are, they're exceptional people. Um, and it isn't for everybody. Yeah. And I think a lot of people may not realize like when Corey Bush ran the first time, she didn't win the first time, but after she lost that race, Corey Bush yeah. never stopped running. No, but but it was never about, see, that's the thing. Corey Bush was never, yes, when you get within the heat of the campaign, it's about your name and, and getting elected. Yes, there is, a, again, strategy is part of it. But Corey never stopped running because Corey never stopped fighting for her people. So Corey was, she came up out of Ferguson riots. That is her, those are her people. And so she realized you know, like, I got to do this. Like there's, our people are dying here. So this has to get done. And she never stopped with that. So yeah, there was the, the electoral part, the campaign part, the Cori Bush for Congress. Yes. But all of that was part of a greater mission. And mm -hmm. I think that's, that's the hugest thing. And that's what we did with our campaign. Campaigns are not just, um, you campaign to get someone elected. The campaign is like a living, breathing entity that's part of the progress. It's the more people you reach out to, the more people you educate, the more people that you bring on board, win or lose. You're building this, this progress, this momentum, and you need to, when you treat your campaign like it's part of the mission, mm -hmm. that's when you get people like Cori Bush. So yes, uh, the, the, the election part is part of it, but it's part of this bigger, we are here for the people push. And I think that that's important. And that is a year round endeavor, you know, that it, you don't just campaign during campaign season. Mm, no, I, I, I really, agree. and it isn't really campaigning. Like for me, it's just, I'm just doing what I'm doing. I'm just doing service. I'm working in the community. I'm just doing what I'm doing. Um, and that's just like Corey. Mm, a similar situation here um, in Massachusetts, uh, Joe Kennedy was running for Ed Markey's seat. Oh, I'm familiar with your whole nonsense. <laughs> And all the people that came out and, and endorsed, don't even. It's so disgusting. I can't. My husband and I were like, even watching the debates, we were like, what, why are you running? Why, why are you? The only reason he was running is because he was a Kennedy. Not once during those debates or any of his speeches did he ever say, really get across to people why he was running. And then not only that, but like, we don't, we don't see you. Like people don't see you and know you like that, like in the community. It's entitlement to a degree that this is what I would, I would like to see somebody, I would like to see um, Ayanna uh, primary Elizabeth Warren. Um, 
I think that would be so awesome and off the charts. But anyway, uh, I digress. Yeah, I mean, you know, you have to come from a community to represent that community. And I don't just mean that in a physical sense. I mean it like psychologically too. It's both, you know, because technically, look, uh, Joe Crowley was never there. He never lived in, in that district. I mean, he probably maintained whatever bare minimum in order to be able to be there, but he didn't live, that wasn't his people, you know? And there's a lot of people around that are representatives that are in that same situation. And ultimately the more people we, as people part of moving forward, um, get involved, the less and less those people are gonna be able to hang on without being from the people. So that's what I say, like campaigns are part of the movement and, and you need to treat it as part of the movement and not just a vehicle to get a job. <clears throat> Very well said. Um, now, since you are a native uh, Floridian, and by the way, you're, you're one of the few people I know that's actually born. <laughs> like oh, and my father was born in Miami. I'm a second generation native Floridian. Yeah, it's so funny because um, everyone I know that lives in Florida moved to Florida. Of course. Yeah. Um, but since you are a native uh, Floridian, um, I think sometimes people, there's a misunderstanding about politics in Florida. Could you explain to everyone, like, what do you think Florida is like politically? Florida <clears throat> is a red state. Florida, mm -hmm. and, and, and despite as much as people would like to think it's a swing state, it really isn't. It's not for a lot of reasons. Um, there's 67 counties I believe that only six of them are blue. Um, so yes, they are the populous counties. It's, you know, Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach. Mm -hmm. And there is this like idea, and especially within those communities, I live in Broward County, so I can tell you amongst my people that the rest of the state should just be just like us. And we should be in charge of the whole state. And aren't we all that? Yet yeah, no, no, that's not how it works. And a big portion of Florida is very rural. Uh, there's Florida is extremely diverse. There's parts of Florida that we call Florabama because there you might as well be in Alabama. Then you've got, you know, the central region, which is you have tons of universities. You've got, I mean, there's just a, Florida is very diverse. And so it's complicated here. And a lot of times what happens is we have a lot of electoral votes. There's a lot of power, but the Democrats are extremely weak here. And I mean, extremely weak. So they don't put a lot of energy. Bernie didn't campaign a lot here. Nobody really campaigns a lot here because mm -hmm. the Democratic Party, the, the infrastructure, the establishment is a very weak and feckless infrastructure in Florida. Again, only six counties are blue. So when you look at Florida as a whole, there's no real like unity of, of blueness here. Uh, whether even whether it be central centrist blue or progressive blue, there's no real cohesion. There's pockets. So like there's a pocket along the I-4 corridor that has a really good, you know, there's some progress happening there. And we're trying to do that down here. And it's very difficult because not only are we fighting against a majority red populace, really, we have to fight against this feckless centrist blue element of our party that just serves to sit there to sit there. Mm. So they're essentially, well, very similar to like what we would be seeing in the Biden administration. These are people that they're blue, 
but they answer to the same corporate donors. And for the most part, things are going to kind of stay the same. The rich are still going to keep getting really rich. We're still going to be in, in intervening in other countries. Like for the most part, status quo um, for the rich. And that's what our Florida state party is very much like, just status quo. They, they're just placeholders and nobody puts any effort because we're red. And so that's what, that's where we are. And it's just, it's, um, it's interesting. It's, 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 it's interesting here, but it's a, it's a constant, like, it's a constant battle. Mm. And that's very, no, this is very good to hear because we know like every time the media tries to paint it as, oh, it's a swing state. Yeah, <laughs> it, it really isn't. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that. First of all, again, there's the rural aspect. And then we also are a very, very heavy immigrant oriented and transient population. Um, there are people that, like you said, they're not from here. They moved here. They could be from anywhere. Like it, it, there's not, this isn't like Pittsburgh or, you know, Milwaukee, where you've got this hometown people that have lived there for a long time, that sort of we don't have that here. Florida is extremely transient and foreign and South Florida is extremely Cuban mm -hmm. and the Cuban voters, especially the older ones, this is starting to change. I'm not going to say, you know, but the older voter generation, the boomers of the Cubans, they're red. There's no like that's which, so it is not even a typical, what you would put them in a typical Latino demographic because Latinos tend to be a bluer demographic. So mm -hmm. in that way, Florida is unique, um, is that a huge percentage of our Latino population is red. Mm. And by red, I'm not implying anything having to do with like communism. I'm simply talking about Republican. Like I heard I'm saying reds like that's no, I mean like uh, GOP. <laughs> I was like, I heard myself say that. I'm like, no, I'm not making like a slur against communism. Like, I don't want to sound like that. No, just very old school. Yeah, um, no, that makes a lot of sense now. When you look at the way our country is right now, politically, um, post-Trump, but I feel like Trump is still around for some reason. Um, what, what do you feel like, what is your opinion about where the company, where the country stands right now? I, I feel optimistic when I see the young people getting involved and I see that we are making the progress. Like I said, I mean, five years ago, we weren't talking about what we're talking about. I think more people are aware we there is a Cory Bush in Congress, right? So, you know, we have a Nina Turner running for Congress, which is like the coolest thing ever to me. I can't even. That is a game changer. People be aware because that we have a squad that have progressive values, but there's not really somebody that's willing to really step out. Yeah. Let let get Nina in there for for a little bit. See how that works. Um so I think that where we are now is there's a good movement in the progressive, like there's a swell, okay? There's a swell of populism. Um, I'm feeling optimistic how it is on the left. Unfortunately, there is a swell of populism that is happening on the right. And that's a little bit scarier. And so, you know, that I think we need to be careful when we're saying we need to have, bring all the people together not all people want to work well with others. So I think that there's definitely a, a little bit of a division that we do have to be aware of, but it isn't the one that people think it is. And, and to me, I see more people realizing that the division that we need to be concerned with is labor, 
versus management, so to speak, or corporate versus grassroots, or, you know, it's the haves and the have nots. That's the issue. And that is not going to change with a Biden presidency. Like I said, this is going to be a very status quo. There will be some tangible benefits. Um, I did vote for Joe Biden. I wasn't thrilled with it. I begrudgingly did it. I'm not happy about it. I don't brag about it. Um, mm -hmm. But I sleep better knowing that the DACA kids are safe. And, and to be honest with you, even if that were the only thing that, that it was, I'd sleep better. So that being said, we are back in the Paris Climate Agreement. There are certain things that are going to improve. There are many things that are going to get worse. Um, we're going to start seeing them trying to get in manufacturing consent for wars in Syria, in Iran. Um, I don't see us getting out of Yemen. I don't see us decreasing our drone bombing anytime soon. Uh, so there's certain things that the neoliberal corporatists will keep going that are really not for us. We're not going to, obviously, we're not going to get Medicare for all. Uh, we, we could possibly get some sort of public option. I, I don't know. Our numbers aren't there yet. So to me, I'm optimistic about our movement in chipping away. But as far as the immediate, like what we're dealing with immediately politically, we're not going to see very much happen like in the next few years. Mm. So I have one more question for you. Um, so there's been a lot of talk recently about the need for a people's party or just the need for another party period. Um, in your opinion, do you feel that we need another party? I think that we would do, we, we need a second party because we actually, that's what I was saying. We do not have two parties in this country. We really don't. We have one corporate party one side of which is a little nicer to LGBT and immigrants and one side that's kind of mean and nasty, but they both represent corporate interests. So I actually would be happy if we had two functioning parties in this country. But yeah, we need multiple parties. We're the only country that doesn't have multiple parties. Now, the movement for a people's party, I'm supportive of that. I am generally supportive of any and all strategies that are working to represent people. And, I, and I'm actually, um, this is something that really bothers me. We've seen it a lot lately is people crapping on other people's strategies um, and what they're trying to do. You don't be infighting with people on our team. That's not gonna serve us. You know what I mean? Like the, the, don't be fighting with the people on our team just because you don't agree with a particular thing. It's just, it's not worthy. Um, but I, I just think that we need to like, it's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated, but yeah, I mean, we are, I think that we are doing well. I think we're, you know, we're, we're getting there where we need to go, but um, yeah, you got to bring me back to where we started with this question for a second. Oh, do you think that, um, that we need another party? Oh yeah. Third parties. Oh, so the movement for a people's party, when that's not going to be the name of it, um, I'm on their, like, I agree to be like on their legal advisory board. I get their emails. I'm supportive of all of that, whether or not that ultimately works. Um, the Green Party has not really been very successful. I think a lot of that, but I have, here's the thing. I think the name is wrong, but well, because it's very pigeonholed. Are they just about environmental issues? Because I think that a lot of people that are working people, but might be conservative in other areas 
wouldn't necessarily see that's the problem. It is too much of a niche. And if we want to get a party that can actually make a dent, it needs to be sizable. And there's nothing that has more in common than labor. And so when you're talking about a people's party, I have to, and I'm, and this remains to be seen, are they reaching out to people that might be conservative in some ways, but they're still labor and they're working people, or are they staying in their little niche of woke left? And this is who is in our group because those kind of micro parties, while I am supportive, I don't think have a chance of being effective. Hmm. So I know you asked me if I'm supportive. I'm very supportive of, again, I'll support anybody if they're trying to help people. But um, unless you are really seeking to bring in the populism on the right and the left, you're not gonna have enough people to be viable. And that's why I think it's important to really break this down and say, we need a labor party in this country. Everything else, and what they do is, if you notice, they use issues like um, trans issues, abortion, um, uh, flag burning. They use these things to keep people fighting against each other. When if you took those issues out, they'd all be on the same team, whether they're farmers, whether they're laborers, whether they're, you know, whatever they are when they're worker bees, you know, the people. And so that's the party we need. We need the party that's based on policy to help people more so than these social issues that we get hung up on. And I'm not saying that abortion isn't isn't an issue. Of course, it's an issue. But that doesn't have to be the focus of our political discourse to the point where we're alienating people that really would support policies to help working people and give us a social safety net. So that's to me, because when I talk to people that are Republicans, they think everybody should have health care. Yep. That everybody should have. So why are we arguing with these people over abortion right now? Can we just put that on the, let's put it on the back burner. You know, let's put some of these really highly emotional issues on the back burner. And that's what a party has to be able to do. And it, it Greens can't do it. They wouldn't even let Jesse Ventura run on their ticket, which had they done that, they could have gotten 5% of the vote, which tells me, okay, they want to be purists. I get it. But, and, and we should have those parties. We should have, we should have the, you know, what's his name? The guy who wears the boot on his head. Like we should have parties for what Supreme, uh, Vermin Supreme. Like everybody should have, I have no problem with that. But in order to think that we're going to have a viable, powerful, party you have to employ some strategy you can't be a complete purist you won't have enough people it's mm. just that simple you, you you know i mean you have to have be able to lure the chunk of people that are right now no party or dissatisfied with that with their party and in order to do that you got to get a lot of those sexy issues off the table because it's it's just it's defeatist so true so true Jen telling the truth today. <laughs> I don't do it any other way. You know what the beauty of telling the truth is? I never have to remember what I said. I don't have to worry about what I said. I don't have to think, oh, what did I say to so-and-so? What is so like, what? no, doesn't matter. Because if you just say the truth, then it's always going to be correct, right? Like there's no, there's no controversy. There's no problem. You just say, once you start making stuff up, that's it. <laughs> it's all gone. 
All right, everyone. Um, I'm going to be sure to put the link to Jen's podcast and her YouTube channel in the description below. And you'll also see that on the bottom of the screen throughout the video as well. Jen, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. By the way, who is this audience? Who is your audience? Millennials. And um, my channel like does a little bit of everything like blogs, uh, interviews and um, life. But is it all politics? No, it's not all politics. Not all politics. Um, sometimes it's just social issues. Good, because this is how I reach people that aren't in the echo chamber. That's also something. We need to not just talk to people that are involved in politics. And that's that's how you get people under like in it. Yeah. No, it's great. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can watch the video of this podcast at Sabby Sab's channel on YouTube.